customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. of the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays, and boy, do we have a fun show for you guys today. A little bit later, Aaron Donald, the Aaron Donald, is going to join us to talk some nerdy football stuff, some ways that he prepares ton of stuff that we got to with Aaron. We're going to be joined by Josh Tolentino, the Athletics Dolphins writer, to talk about the start of the Tua era in Miami. But before that, I'm very pleased now to be joined by nine-year NFL cornerback. He hosts the Man to Man pod with Antoine Bethea. He does everything DB on YouTube. You should absolutely check it out. I've learned so much from him this football season as he's broken stuff down on Twitter and really examined a level of the game that I don't think or know much about, and that's the defensive backfield. And I really wanted to have him on to talk about what it's been like for the first six weeks of the season. Darius Butler. Darius, how are you doing? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Of course. I Again, I, I've watched so much of the stuff that you pointed out this year, and I think that one of the biggest stories of the season so far has been offensive production. You know, Coming into the week, I think it uh-huh. was teams are averaging 2.32 uh, points per drive which would be the highest mark of all time. I think the record is two points per drive. So you just see all of these high-flying offenses, so many points. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about what you're seeing from offenses that's put them ahead of defenses so far. So if you were trying to just present it on a general level, why NFL offenses for the first third of the year have been ahead of defenses, what has jumped out to you about that? Um, something we talked about just uh pre pre uh pre snap shifts motions uh but guys are giving you're giving quarterbacks you're giving coordinators more options right more options at the line of scrimmage so it's harder for offense good offenses to be wrong uh, you watch the uh, the Chiefs and the Bills player the Chiefs and whoever play like the the screen games like this Mahomes looks like he has two or three options on the screen. It's just like it's, those are incorporated in uh, so many different parts of the game now, whether it's RPOs or guys doing different things in the, with the play calls. But you got more options. And uh, the defense has to evolve in the sense of, you know, giving some of your play callers, or some of your leaders out there on the field more options to get in or out of, um, you know, coverages. And uh, until we start to do that, we're going to stay behind the curve. Why do you think – 
football and just information has evolved quicker in the past five years or so because it does feel like that. It feels like there are more layups. It feels like there's more stuff being stolen from college or from other NFL teams. The world has become flat when it comes to ideas, I think, in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So would you just say that teams are more willing to evolve quicker to evolve quicker to adopt new ideas now than they might have been when your career started oh 1000 percent um 1000 percent. it's just uh you know because you know football you got a lot of old guys who are stuck in their ways well that's how it used to be at least when i came <laughs> yeah. to the league in 2009 and guys just been around for a while and they've been coaching certain things for a while whether it's a defense or offense and it's just it's just been that way. And the coaches are very um, – a lot of A-type personalities, a lot of people who are – you know, it's ego involved. It's things, hey, I've been doing this for so long. Like, you're not going to come in. I'm not going to change up my whole thing for you. Um, so it's been some of that. And now with these players and coaches, uh, you know, you, you, if you don't perform in those first two or three years, they're calling – two years, they're calling for your head. So a lot of these times new coaches get in, you bring in quarterbacks. And a lot of these quarterbacks, obviously, coming from college, you want to – put a lot of things in your uh, playbook that's going to make them comfortable. And that's why you see the quarterbacks coming in and playing at such a high level early, just because they're adapting. You'll see, it's, it's amazing to see somebody like Andy Reid, who's been around the game forever, adapt the way he has uh, with, you know, Mahomes at quarterback, or even, um, you know, other quarterbacks around the league. Uh, Roman, with what you saw what he was doing with Cap years ago in the 49ers, and he just evolved that to different steps with uh, Lamar Jackson. So it's really about evolution. Um, and that's and, and guys are just becoming more adaptable and, and really these jobs aren't as long as they used to so you get a job and you want to start to win now so you got to make guys as comfortable as possible and um, it's, a, it's always been a copycat league but now it's just uh, it's moving faster like I remember when I came in the league Wildcat was one of those things like yeah. the Dolphins that kind of took the league by storm with Wildcat and then everybody in the league had their own Wildcat <laughs> packet and then it was the RPO and now it's just a lot of the spread offense and getting the ball uh, into guys in space um, and, and making open field tackles are becoming even more important now. Having guys on defense that can wear multiple hats, they can be a good player in the run game, be a good defender in the pass game. Um, you know, th- th- those are becoming more and more valuable. I like one of those things I think has cropped up a lot this year is how much jet motion has taken over with some of the best offenses in the NFL or pre-snap motion and guys moving at the snap. And it's fun to watch the progress of it because I'm writing a little bit about this this week and you and I have talked about this a little bit before. So when the jet motion stuff started in like 2017 or so, right, when the you know, Pitt had been doing it and they really stole it from like Bob Stitt and Colorado School of Mines and all of this weird college stuff, which is how this stuff originates. <laughs> uh-huh. And the, the Chiefs were doing a lot of that jet motion, pitch it to the guy in motion, stuff like that. It felt like that originally was a way to get the ball on the edge quickly. You know, that makes sense. It just, you think about, okay, that you're getting people on the edge, you're using your fastest players. Then the Rams started doing it where they would use the jet motion and then run behind it because it displaces linebackers in gaps and plays with their eye discipline. Now it feels like people are using the jet motion to throw the ball. So you're changing number counts. You're changing who's one, who's two, who's three. You're making defenses think and communicate really quickly. And that's really interesting this year because of the limited offseason that defenses had. Teams had less time to really plan, to have these really drawn out, fully fledged ideas of this is how we communicate. This is how we handle this. So how would you say that offenses have done the best job of stressing that communication? And where would you say that defensive communication has been lacking because of the lack of time teams had to prepare in the offseason? Well, yeah. Um, so any anytime you motion, 
Um, for an if I'm an offensive coordinator, if I'm an offensive play caller, I'm always incorporating some type of motion or shift. Um, just because the more I do that, the more I take it out of the coordinator's hands, and I put it more, I put more on the plate of the players on the field. Because as a defensive coordinator, you only got three things really: you have field position, you have uh, down and distance, and you know the offensive personnel that's in the huddle. So once they come out and they get into their formation and then they go from one formation to another and that, all that is on the players to, ex okay, what do we need? We need to change this call to that call. I need to be here. I have to be here. Okay, I'm, I'm responsible to drop off a number two. Okay, now he's number two. Now this guy's jet motion over here. He's like, you can't prepare for that as a defensive coordinator, so you're putting more on the plate um, for the players. And uh, that's, that's where you, you get behind. That's where you get miscommunication. And on the defensive side of the ball, you just have to, you just have, to have clear communication uh, from the top down. From, the, from every guy on the field has to know what they're doing in a variety of different – hey, if he's here, if he's here, if you know you're playing a team like the Rams who does a bunch of uh, jet motion, we got to have simple, simpler calls that don't have as much adjusting as far as, you know, passing strength goes. So – um. It's a combination of those things. And your second question, let me get your second question again. What elements of that communication do you think probably aren't as fully developed because teams didn't have as much time in the preseason to go through all of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of these things, um, it, even if you have a preseason, you only have so much time in that building. So it, it, the onus is really still on the players. Um, but it, having a short having a short off season is only going to make it tougher for those guys to communicate because there's a lot of communication that goes on from getting the original play call in the huddle and then the actual snap of the football. Like there should be a ton of communication uh, taking place on defense, regardless of what the call is. We can call cover three every down. Every down, every snap before that, that ball is snapped, we need to be communicating to each other. Hey, alert this, alert that. Hey, Kittle's here. Hey, that guy's there. Hey, it's second and long. Alert the screen. So communication has to be taking place regardless. And that's really what it comes down to, just everybody being on the same exact page, speaking the same exact language. And, uh, I mean, everybody was kind of dealt the same cards as far as the offseason goes, so you just got to figure out a way. It's not going to be any really excuses or explanations when it comes to that. So we got to figure it out. As a defense, if I, as a coordinator, I got to make my call simpler. I got to make it easier for everybody, every guy to be on the same page, at least for the first, let's say, four weeks, and then we can expand and evolve from that. That's what I got to do. But everybody's got to be on the same page, and even beyond that, we got to be communicating what could possibly be coming from the offense. And obviously, this is going to be dependent on personnel. But if you were starting from scratch mm -hmm. and you were a defensive coordinator in the NFL, what would, do you think would be the basis of your coverage plan? Like, where would you start as the foundation of your defense if you were just looking at the landscape of what NFL offenses look like right now? Man, uh, the foundation... I, I need I need a pass rush before I even get to the court quarter uh, the coverages and what I'm doing in the back end because none of that matters none of those play calls matter if I don't have guys that can get to the quarterback without me dialing up blitzes and exposing more things on the back end right that gives you so much more freedom to do things on the back end when it comes to coverage wise now when I'm playing a team like the Chiefs or I'm playing a team like um, you know, a lot of these teams who have multiple guys, like a, a Falcons, for instance, even though they're not winning right now, and going into that game, you got to take care of Julio. And really, he's not a guy that I'm comfortable with just leaving in one-on-one -on -one coverage all game either. So when I have four guys that can get after the passer, I can do – I can be much more flexible in the back end as far as where I'm going with coverages 
hey, maybe I even need a spy. We're playing Lamar Jackson. We're playing this guy, that guy this week. Maybe I need a spy. Um, so I need that pass rush. First and foremost, like the Bears, give me a four-man pass rush. I can get after you like the Bears. A healthy Chargers front four. Healthy 49ers front four. Um, the Colts front four has been getting after the quarterback. So um, give me that, and I can build anything else. But as far as coverages, um, it doesn't matter what you call, honestly. It's just about being sound. And I'll say that over and over again. I kind of sound like a broken record, but the calls don't matter as much as the guys understanding the calls and then understanding the weaknesses of those calls. So if we're going to run out there and play cover two and cover three all day, we need to know the weak spots in this coverage and we need to know the strong points in this coverage as well. So if you were kind of going back to the offensive for a little bit, you mentioned Andy Reid. If you were playing right now, who is the offensive coordinator you would want to play against the least? Who's the guy that you would just be sitting there all week as you studied being like, son of a bitch. Like, what is he even doing here? Like, I really don't want to deal with this. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's Eric Vanaby and, and Andy Reid is those two guys, of course. And I mean, their weapons, you got so many weapons going into a game. So, and this is for anybody's out there listening. So going into a game, no matter what team you're on, that first Wednesday meeting, getting ready for the game, the head coaches, that's the only time really as a, as a, complete team we sit down and meet and we talk about the opponent so going into a game let's say you're playing the Chiefs you usually you typically put maybe two or three guys on each phase of the game who are what we call game records right so offensively we're going hey this guy that guy those are game records these two guys on defense you know Miles Garrett and this guy those are game records right on the Chiefs there's so many guys who can wreck the game for you. got uh, the running back. You got Patrick Mahomes. You got Kelsey. You got Hill. So it's so many guys that you have to be aware of where they're on the field. And it's, 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 it's tough. So obviously, you know, with those weapons, um, BNNB, what they're doing in Kansas City, and also somebody like, uh, like a healthy 49ers with Kyle Shanahan, what he yeah. does and mixing up, like you said, the pre-snap motions, the shifts. And he has, once again, the personnel you know, you got a fullback that can be just as involved and just as impactful in the run game as he can be in the pass game. Same thing with George Kittle. He's, the reason I would say he's the best tight end in the league is because he's a matchup problem. If, I, if you match somebody out there that's going to be effective against Kittle in the run game, you damn sure can't cover him. And if you put somebody out there that can, has a chance of covering him, he's going to get blocked up in the run game. So guys like that, um, you know, make it really, really difficult. And then the mind of like a, a guy like Kyle Shanahan, what he does scheme-wise – I saw when he got the ball back last night and uh, basically got into a four-minute drill where they're trying to get a couple first downs and run the clock out. He would probably be the last team in the league, the last coach, offensive coordinator in the league that I would want to be going up against in a four-minute situation just because of how he uh, dials it up. That's so true. I didn't, like, there are guys that, like, with the, with the Chiefs, you're afraid of the big play, right? You're just constantly being afraid of yep. them burning you down. With Shanahan, I don't think I'd have greater faith than any one coach to get me 10 yards. Get me a first down. I think he's the exactly. first person that I would mention. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way to think about it because that's a really big distinction. So what you were talking about actually with the jet motion. So like going into the going into playing the 49ers, um, Debo Samuel will be a guy who will be like, all right, you know, he's one of the guys that can get on the edge quick, whether it's a little shovel pass, whether it's a reverse. Same thing with Odell. You've seen him do a lot this year. Uh, Claypool in, in Pittsburgh, you've seen him do a lot. So going into the game, you know, okay, Hardman Hill, you know these are the guys who do it, right? But in that four-minute situation last night, third, I think it was like third and seven, 
you do a little shovel pass to Debo, you get him on the edge, and it's like that's that that's the guy you want. Yeah. Like it, it was just a brilliant play call. So um, yeah, Shanahan would definitely be the top of the list. So if you're playing the Chiefs and you were going through that game record conversation, if we remove Mahomes from the equation, who do you think is more important to the way that they play? Do you think it's Hill or Kelsey? Oh, hmm, that's tough. Um, I would say I'll probably say Kelsey, just because of. You, you, you're always in a bad spot as far as, like I said, matching them up personnel wise. Like, who do we match? Who do we match up with him? He's not a, now he's not as good as, um, anywhere near as good as Kittle is in the run game. So he gives you, you know, some numbers there. But in the past game, we're going to put a linebacker on him, going to put safety. Really got to put a corner on him to have a chance. And the corners are too small. So he's the biggest matchup problem. Obviously, Hill can run by anybody. But if you play them off and force them to, you know, stay in front of you or you keep a safety over the top, kind of how the Patriots do, you know, he may get you a play, big play here and there. But Kelsey is going to consistently move those chains, going to consistently keep drives going. And uh, he's going to be a matchup problem every night, every afternoon, no matter who you're playing against. So when you were playing, who would you say is the receiver that you had to pay the most attention to, the one who brought the most to the table? A guy like Antonio Brown. Uh, being on the same page that he was on with Big Ben as far as not only the first route, like, oh, yeah, he's going to run a good comeback route and the ball to be there. He'll run a good deep ball to post here and there. But what they kill you um, with is kind of like when it turns into backyard ball almost. Yeah. Like when that first player is kind of dead or, you know, Big Ben kind of, you know, he's not mobile. He's not going to escape the pocket, but he's going to throw a couple guys off. And now, you know, Antonio Brown was running a dig, and he was right here, and now he's 20 yards that way, and the ball's in the air, it's a touchdown. So Antonio Brown's motor, um, his routes, his hands, like tough catches, uh, I would say Antonio Brown definitely was probably one of those guys who you knew we were going to have our hands full as a secondary dealing with. Would you also say, because I think these are two different questions, would you also say that was the guy that required the most attention during the week? The guy whose name was kind of in the brightest lights on that board when you'd be listing guys as you were preparing for them? Yeah, I mean, it's a few of those guys around the league who, um, what we call it in football terms, is just changing the math. Like, it's guys who change the math. Like Aaron Donald, he changed the math up front. Like, you got to put two guys on him. Um, Julio Jones changed the map. DeAndre Hopkins changed the map. He was in our division, spent a lot of time playing against him. He was one of those guys you always had to know where he was. But um, I would say he wasn't as effective or dominant when he moved to the slot as he was at that X receiver. Now, he's evolved at this point, but back when I was playing him, um, a guy like Antonio Brown and why he's almost always my answer is because he was effective at any part of the field yeah. lining up, whether it was X, Z, the slot, uh, returning the ball, and then he was also a guy who affected you on all three levels. So you can throw him the ball at the line of scrimmage for a screen, he can get 50. You can throw him a slant, he can take it to the house. You can throw him a post. He had some of the best adjustments to deep balls in the game. So you have those receivers that can affect you all three levels. Um, typically, those are the toughest guys to um, stop, and you got to pay attention to. Of course. This is a weird question. Uh, this is going to sound silly just on its face. Do you think Julio Jones is underrated? Because it's so, because when we, I talk to players or coaches, especially, remember I've talked to Wade Phillips about this, and I would ask him, you know, what receivers do you, and Julio is always the first guy that people mention because he just has this combination yeah. of straight line speed and he can throttle down in ways guys that big can't. He just has this combination of traits. And I don't know if people would just instantly say that he's the most talented, impactful receiver in a post-Calvin Johnson world. But I think he is 
pretty that, definitively. That, that, that's where that's where it gets hairy. That's where it gets hairy is the impact impactful because um, impacting is at that position scoring touchdowns. Yeah. So he hasn't been at the top of that list for so for a while it was him and A B at the top. And if someone asked me, I would always give A B the edge because once again, A B was gonna get in the paint ten plus times a year. On you top like 14 of going times for 13, a year. 14, yeah. 15. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's on top of going for the yardage. Now Julio is gonna kill. He's gonna have, you know, 13, 14, 1,500 yards every year, but he may have four touchdowns, six. He may have eight. Andre Johnson was another one of those guys who killed you numbers wise, but for some reason, unbeknownst to man, they don't score as many touchdowns as the others of these as these other guys. So that will probably be the only reason why he's not unequivocally the 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 best an argument to be the best receiver ever. If he was a guy who averaged nine touchdowns a year, I don't think it would be a debate. But when you're going out there as a player. He's he's one of those guys that you see and you're like, okay, like I've watched this guy on film, but it's like a damn avatar out here, man. So he, <laughs> he and like you said, he has a straight line speed. Uh, he has the ability to get in and out of routes like a little guy. Uh, he makes tough catches. The only reason I think that people uh, and there's no knock you can put on Julio Jones, but the only reason I would say he's not uh, the you know bar none is the best we've seen since whoever is is the touchdown production. What is your guess on that? Because I've thought about that so often because Andre Johnson was one of those guys. I loved Andre Johnson because I love that Kubiak offense and I love the spot he fits in that in that offense. Why do you think those guys aren't as productive in the red zone? Because for Julio, I think people have tried to explain it away saying, well, he just gets doubled all the time down there. That's why Calvin Ridley is always open. I don't know enough about the structure of defenses to just kind of attributed to that. So what would your guess be about why those two guys didn't score as often as somebody like an Antonio Brown would? Man, I, 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 I tell you, I have no idea. I have no idea. Antonio Brown, I mean, because when you look at touch scoring touchdowns for a receiver, you know, the first thing obviously you're going to bring up is red zone. But, I mean, receivers can score from all like, – you can score yeah. from 30 yards out, 40 yards, 50 yards, you know, 25 yards out. And damn right he's getting doubled in the red zone, but so is A.B., so is Keenan Allen. So is DeAndre Hopkins. So is um, all, most of these guys are getting doubled majority of the time if someone's getting doubled in the red zone. So I would, you, can't, you can't attribute it to that. Um, I haven't watched them uh, just specifically the Falcons enough to say, oh, it's the play calling, but they've had different play callers. You've had the it's same It's been 10 years. Yeah, it can't just be the play callers. Yeah, like, you know, how, how's the targeting? Is he getting the same target? So I don't know. It, it's really it's really a crazy – it's one of those things that um, I don't know if anybody really have the answers to, but um, for some reason it, it hasn't. The production hasn't been there when it comes to scoring touchdowns, and I think that's the only thing that you can, if you had to pick and prize some of his career, that's the only thing you can look at. All right, I want to talk about Bill Belichick a little bit because you played for him for a couple of years. I'm sure that a hundred thousand people be. have asked you about Bill Belichick. Just on a simple level, what is your favorite Bill Belichick story? Oh, man, so many. Um, favorite one. I mean, so he doesn't get enough credit enough for his uh, how funny he is. So Bella, he's, he has a really dry uh, sense of humor. And But um, so after my first game, uh, Monday Night Football, rookie, uh, it came down to the last play. We were playing the Buffalo Bills. They had This was at the time they had Lee Evans, Terrell Owens, uh, Fred Jackson, Roscoe Pierce, like they had some guys on offense. And Underrated, fun team. Yeah, it was a fun team. I think yeah. Marshawn Lynch may have still been on that team where he just got traded. But um, 
come down the last play of the game. And I'm getting, I probably got maybe 25, 30 snaps that game. Uh, last, very last play of the game, too far away to throw the Hail Mary. So it becomes one of those plays, you know, you throw it, pitch it back, throw it, pitch it back. So I'm running around like a chick with my head cut off. I'm hitting T.O. I bounced off like a BB <laughs> on the taint. I get shook by Roscoe <laughs> Perez. I miss a tackle or two more. So next day, uh, with Bill Belichick, one famous thing, low lights. Like, it's always low lights. You can beat a team 30-0 or you can lose 30-0. You're going to have low lights on Monday morning. So Monday morning, he comes in. He's like, man, he waits all the way to the end of the meeting. It's the last play. And he says, man, I've been coaching the NFL for, you know, 30-plus years at this point. And Butler, I have never seen a player miss four tackles on one play. <laughs> so I'm like, coach, I'm like, coach, I mean, I'm hustling, you know, I'm running around, I'm, I'm making so, but uh, that, that was that was probably my uh, favorite Belichick story, just him calling me out like that after missing uh, literally four, three or four tackles on one play. You got to be working hard to miss four tackles on one play, though. That's the thing. Hey, man, you got to be hustling your ass off, man. And that's what I was doing. And, um, you know, some, somebody got him down. Damn, it's a team game, man. It's 11 of us out there. How the hell I get there four times? <laughs> I think that the most interesting thing about Belichick, and I want to talk about some of the schematic stuff in a second, but I've always been fascinated by how he breeds goodwill with players, like how he creates it. Because when you are hard on guys, and when that is a portion of how you coach and how you teach is by these are the lowlights, you need to get better, being really demanding. It's interesting that he can make guys want to play for him. So how would you try to communicate that? How did, why did you guys want to play for him despite how much of a hard ass he can be at times? Honestly, um, and it's something that I didn't see the, my first, you know, my first year or two there, um, you see that it, it works. You know, it's a method to the madness. And when you run out of that tunnel, um, I can remember vividly, actually, it was two players who um, we had been there a couple of years and we had just signed another guy who we were all familiar with. And he came in and, he, and we were talking, trying to kind of tell him about the Patriot way. Like, hey, man, this is how it goes. You know, when this go down, look at this or that or this. Uh, and we're telling him, he's like, damn, man, like this, man, this is some, this is some tough stuff, man. And we were like, like how, y'all, like, how do y'all deal with this? And he's like, you know, Monday through Saturday is, you know, you feel like that. But when you run out of the tunnel on Sunday, you feel like every week you're going to win that game. And you feel like if we don't win, like we did something, we did something wrong. Like, cause we are going to be the more prepared team. Uh, we're, we're going to execute better. We're going to be the better conditioned team. We're going to condition after damn near every practice, which no other team does that I've been on. Um, and it's just different things that's kind of driven in psychologically that gives you that edge um, on Sunday more times than not. And it definitely doesn't hurt um, to have Tom Brady, but um, when you have a winning <laughs> formula for so long, it's hard to um, – it's hard for guys not to buy in. You know, you see guys doing it, and then you see a Tom Brady or a Cam Newton or a Devin McCourty or Vince Wilfork or whoever these guys are with these great names and resumes. You see them 100% bought in. So you have really have no option. You have no choice. So um, it, it's not about, you know, trying to convince guys to play for you. It's really about you get on board or, you know, you won't be here long. It's always been really interesting to me the way they've built those teams. They've always had Patriots lifers in the locker room. And Brady, it helps that Brady is, is, has been there for 20 years. But even on defense, if you look at every iteration, there's always been that core of two to three guys. So it was you know, Brewski and Richard Seymour, those guys at the beginning. Mike Vrabel, uh, in, that was the first iteration. And then it was, like you said, the Vince Wilfork, Gerard Mayo. Then now you have Devin McCourty. Having that nucleus 
and having it kind of infect the rest of the locker room, I would say is an underrated part of why they've been able to keep guys bought in as consistently as they have over the past two decades. Yeah, absolutely. So players, uh, players are really the drivers of the culture, um, especially on the professional level. Now on the college level, you know, whatever Dabo Swinney says goes, you know, whoever you are, we got this many five-star recruits, we got this. It's, it's easier to steer that ship as a college coach um, as far as the power, the power goes. On the professional level, um, it's a different dynamic. Because you got one guy, you got guys getting paid 10, 15, 20, 25 million dollars a year. You got a coach that's maybe getting paid five or six. So the, the power shift is different. So Tim Duncan has to buy into Popovich. Tom yeah. Brady has to buy into Bill Belichick. And then that, that permeates throughout the team. And like you said, having guys like Devin McCourty around forever. Now Hightower would be one of those guys. Patrick Chung, one of those guys. Like those are the guys, Julian Edelman on the offensive side of the ball. Yep. Just guys who've been Matt Slater um, when it comes to special teams. So having those guys, you spoke about the people that were there before, Willie McGinnis, Ty Law, Vince Wilford, Richard Seymour. Like the list goes on. So when you come in, regardless of where you come from, where you're drafted, you just like, okay, this is how things are done around here, and we win. Yeah, let me be a part of that. And if you're not, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't really take, take long <laughs> to weed out, um, you know, the cancers. Cancers don't – you don't build – because you know in teams, um, with teams, it's just, when they come down and the, and the locker room is lost and all these fractures within the team, usually that comes with, you know, a little group over here saying, hey, man, this, you know, this ain't going right. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's the offense for all, oh, you know, the special teams, you know, they've been sucking, they've been missing field goals. When you got everybody on the same page, like looking in the mirror, say, hey, I got to do my job better. That's when you really get real accountability and you get everybody giving their all and, and giving you your best chance to win every Sunday. What is different about the way that he teaches and coaches defense? Because we hear about it all the time, but what act specifically is different about his approach? Um, it's the details. Just the devils in the details, and um, like I said uh, earlier in the in the, um, in the, in the podcast, um, you only have so many hours in the building. So he, I don't want to say scares you, but he almost scares you into being more prepared than you normally would. So, and that's not always just football. It's not always just your job. So um, I was reading the article that I was in. And it just took a bunch of quotes from all, a bunch of different players from over the years. And um, a lot of guys were saying the same things. But one of the things that he did year in, year out was coming in, I needed to know my teammates' names. I needed to know what college they went to. I needed to know what sign was on the hallway right outside of the meeting room. I needed to know the four things outside the door when I walk in the building. I needed to know the four things on the other side. That's before it gets into knowing my opponent inside and out when I get called out in the meeting at whatever point. So you're always on your toes. So when you leave that facility, you're preparing on your own more so than you would be on any other team. So when I went to other th teams throughout my career and things went different, I'm like, like this is like, whoa, like nobody, <laughs> like nobody's getting put on the spot. Nobody's getting called out. Like if you know it, you know it. If you don't, you don't. And then you get the game. And then that one situation presents itself and we're kind of looking around at each other like, um, do we do – and ball snap is over with, game over, we, we lost. So on the New England side, you're going to be so prepared for every situation that when that preparation presents – I mean, when that situation presents itself, we don't have any talking or thinking to do. We've already been here before. We've, been, we, we, we've, we've walked through this. This is actually a little easier than what it was in practice because in practice, I had to go against Tom Brady, Randy Moss, and Wes Walker. <laughs> and now I'm out here with, you know – 
whoever this is and that. So now I, I'm I'm prepared. So you move that much quicker in a in critical situation in the game, whether it's money downs, third downs, red area, um, some type of two minute situation. Um, the more prepared team usually uh, wins those situations. And I know you you've told me this before that you you would know like how wide the numbers were and how many how many yards were between yeah. certain areas of the field because of how specific the defensive rules were in New England. That's that that is different, right? Like not everyone teaches it that way. Very different. Um I don't think I, I haven't been I won't say in, no nobody else does it cuz I'm sure his people have went under play, other places and I'm sure he's probably learned that from someone else, but um like I keep saying you only got so many hours and and you can only go through so much and that's kind of like base stuff. Like hey, everybody's got to know how wide the numbers are. You got to know the difference between the top of the numbers and the bottom. Because you'll be surprised. All these guys go through college and they don't learn any of this stuff. It's just like, hey, you go guard your guy. You play cover two. You play this. You don't understand why you're doing it. Or, be better than the guys across from you. Exactly. And that's, you can get yeah. through. You can get past high school, college, and all that. So on the pro level, it's different. Um, it's between the ears. So knowing those things. And you think it's tedious. You think it's too much at the time. Or how, why do I need to know how wide the hash marks are? Why do I need to know how much distance? Why do I need to know exactly where my midpoint is? But once again, once that, uh, once the situation comes up in the game, you know these things. You know that. You know this. So knowing those things, that's baseline. Identifying formations is another thing that he was really, really big on. Um, like knowing the difference between deuce and twins. Knowing the difference between trips and tray. Knowing you know, knowing the difference between far and near. Why it's called far and near. Like so, knowing different formations so that. I know me and Patrick Chung are speaking the same language. So when we go to the sideline and we're looking at the, the, the tablet and we say, all right, yeah, coach. So they came out and, and before when I was playing, we had pictures, like we had still pictures. So it wasn't even a, yeah. a live moving tag. It was pictures. So it was on the players and coaches to really diagnose what happened. Hey, and everybody's coming to the sideline. Hey coach, I got double team. Yeah. I got double team too. Yeah. I got double team too. coach. So it's like, all right, somebody out here lying. But um, the, the more you out there speaking the same, the more you out there speaking the same language, like, hey, coach, it was twins, uh, pro, it was this, it was that, uh, gun far, blah, blah, blah. We need to shift to this. We need to go and do that. That you, the quicker you can move, you know, in battle or you know, in football. And uh, I, I just think overall, his approach to the game, and this comes from his military background with his dad and everything. His approach to the game was more military, militant than it was football. And the mind games that he played with us coming into the building, like that's all military stuff. You look around his his bookshelf in his office, you see the Art of War by Sun Tzu. You see some book written by some great general, or you see all these things, you know. And, and then he incorporates all that into um his football team. And I think it makes bringing it all back around that ability to be on the same page communication wise, to be able to have it be streamlined, is a way to combat these offenses yep. that are making it harder for defenses to communicate and stressing those areas of communication so once again a football conversation starts with a problem and bill belichick is the answer as so many of them have been so (laughs) man i really appreciate the time i I can't tell you how much fun this is so thank you so much for doing this and uh, we'll talk to you down the road again please check out darius's twitter he's at darius j butler please check out the man to man pod he does with antoine bethea please check out everything db on youtube it is really useful stuff you will learn a ton darius thanks a lot for the time man appreciate it Hey, appreciate you for having me. I had fun. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, 
Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. And I am thrilled now to be joined by all-world, all-pro, multiple-time defensive player of the year, Los Angeles Rams defensive tackle Aaron Donald. Aaron, how you doing, man? I'm doing real good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you about a bunch of different stuff. We're going to get into why you're here here in a little bit, some of the stuff the Rams have done this year. Right off the bat, though, I mean, there are so many things watching you, the intricacies of your game that I find really interesting. And I want to talk to you about a move you go to fairly often. And the third sack you had against Washington, you did that little cross-chop Euro step move that you really like to do. And that has become so popular around the NFL. Khalil Mack does it a lot. And for people that don't know, it's kind of an inside-out move where you do a little swim over the guy's hands. I'm really curious why you think that move in particular has caught on so much with NFL pass rushers in recent years. Um, Well, cross, chop, chop club, well, that's a move that's been around forever. So I ain't the first guy to start using it. You know, I actually started learning about it more. Um, going into my my rookie year, and they kind of like watched Robert Quinn the year he had like nineteen and then half sacks. I, I watched the film a lot to just trying to you know see how he did, and then I practiced it a lot, and then I finally got it down. But you know that that's a that's a pass rush move that's been around forever. You know I just kind of um, put it into my own game a couple years ago and kind of ran with it. So. Why do you think guys are going to it so often now? Do you think that there are benefits to it that fit with the way a lot of defenses play in like today's NFL? Um, well, it's all about the offensive lineman. The guy you're going yeah. against, the way he's set, the way his hands is. Um, you watch film prior to a game, and you see that you can get certain things on him, the way he's setting, the way his hands is. So, um, you know, and then you take advantage of it from there. It's just a, a quick move to get on and off to get to the quarterback as fast as you can. So um, it's definitely a nice change-up move. So when you're coming up with different moves and different approaches, how does that process work and how do you come up with new ideas? Is it something where you're watching a lot of guys? Do you take time to kind of sit down in the offseason and evaluate your game? How do new ideas come about with you? 
Um, just studying yourself. You got to, to watch certain moves and certain way guys are blocking you and, and trying to figure out ways to defeat that block to get past the guy to get to the quarterback. That's the main thing. As a pass rusher, you, you, you got to get sacked. You got to find ways to pick pressure on the quarterback, affect the quarterback. So that's all about studying yourself, studying your opponent, um, understanding different ways they like to block, different things you can do to defeat them, um, different moves you can do, and, and, and then you go from there. So when you're kind of sitting down and going through that, do you kind of does that start in the off season? Like when you let's say it's you know March first, and you're really just getting into your off season. Do you go back and watch some of the stuff you did during the season? Do you kind of do like a diagnostic about what the previous year was and how you need to get better and what you need to add? Yeah, you I, like this year, this coming into this season, I had my defensive line coach, Coach Henny. Um, just give me all my third down rushes and send them to me because I wanted to see, you know, how guys was blocking me a lot because I know I was getting slide protection and things like that. So just trying to study that to help myself to um, what can I do more to, you know, get off this or certain things I can do to, you know, um, defeat certain slide protections and things like that when I'm getting it to, to still trying to affect the quarterback and you just pretty much study yourself. Um, and again, study the offensive alignment sets, how they blocked you prior years that you felt like they slowed you down, different blocking schemes that slowed you down, that you can do different things to um, find ways to get free and get be productive. So um, it's, it's a whole process you go, go through it, but it definitely um, was, was a good process going through the offseason and, and, and start with you just studying yourself first and then go from there. Do you talk to other guys? Like, how do ideas? Because I know that offensive line, there's that masterminds clinic that guys do, and they share ideas and different kinds of techniques. Do you guys have, or do you have certain guys you talk to and share stuff with? Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say more. You just, you just work, work different things yourself, and then you know, you obviously you got coaches and things that you that that break down for them and watch you as well. That critique you and give you ideas of certain things you could do better or things you need to work on. And then you go from there. So how would you say, you know, obviously beside the slide protection stuff, how would you say the approach that offensive linemen have taken toward you has changed over the years? What kind of stuff are they maybe trying now that they hadn't in the past as guys try to figure you out a little bit? Oh, um, well, it's a lot. Well, you get, you know, you got the offensive lineman choking down, meaning, you know, the offensive tackle is helping before he go out and block the end, meaning he pretty much punches you with an overset with the guard to close up the B gap, and then you got a center sliding over right now to help you, so you really got no rush. You got no B rush, and you got no A gap rush. So it's, it's pretty much a triple team. To me, it's a triple team. To y'all, y'all won't see that, but if you, if you, <laughs> if you see an offensive tackle leaving his hand out pretty much helping before he block out to the end, and then you got the guard running over now with an overset, he closing up the B gap. And then you, you think an inside move, but you got to think the center's running over to me now. So it's like, you know, for, for me, it's a dead player trying to work a game off it. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's blocking schemes like that to the point where just giving opportunities for other guys to, you know, make the play. So it also feels like when I, th- I think in times where that's happened this year, you've kind of slow played it a little bit and allowed stuff to clear out so you can kind of loop around the traffic. Is that one way that you've tried to deal with teams doing that to you? Yeah, you do certain different things. I don't want to say too much to give our tricks away. And I, I, I know. I'm trying to walk the line here. <laughs> you know, you, you got you to, gotta, when you get certain things, you got to work games and work different things to free you up. And sometimes it comes with me just, you know, telling the guy on the backside to win and I'll play off him. Like you said, you know, I might slow play it and then trying to wrap free and then do something like that. But, um, you know, it, it's definitely made my job a lot harder. But it is what it is. It comes with the territory, I guess. 
How do you, when you, when you're trying to find ways to free yourself up and you're talking to your coaching staff, whether it's Staley or your position coach or whatever, do you guys kind of have conversations about finding unique ways to use you? Like on a week to week basis, what's the conversation like between you and the staff about how you're going to get deployed that week? Um, well, we, I sit down and I talk to him definitely with Coach Henny and I and I, I watch film. He watch film. I give him my ideals, even my ideals, think certain things we can do to try to um, get the one on one matches or you know doing different things, giving different looks to trying to get the one on one matches. So it's definitely a long process. Then come game day, if we think it's going to be one way and it's still sliding up certain protection or we give a certain look and I'm getting a one on one, I go to the sideline and then we conversate and I tell him what I'm seeing, what I'm getting, and then you know we go from there. One of the things I've noticed that that's actually pretty cool is you're lining up really wide on some plays, but still attacking the B gap. So you're almost over the tackle, but you're ending up inside. You almost have a runway that you get to run down. What's the thought behind that? Like, what's the motivation behind using you in that way? If you're still going to go inside, but lining up that far outside, I don't want to take too much, but it's a front that we go in, and you know, it's a way we able to do certain things to try to isolate a guy and get a one on one. So sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. So. And obviously, you know, that you work with Wade for a long time and then having Coach Daly come in this year. What's that process like in a season where you're not around each other all the time, but you're having to learn a new coach, what his preferences are, the way he communicates? What was that like this spring? Um, it's just a part of the business. You know, you got to adapt and you got to just, you know, go with the punches as they go. And then at the same time, you're not there. You still got to find a way to um, learn the defense, understand it. That's what just more with communication things. and and did a lot of different things on these Zooms calls. And then once you get in person, you know, you actually get on the grass and get the walk through and then go full speed with certain things. And, you know, with different formations and different looks that we got to do, you know, you got certain techniques you got to work on, get comfortable with. Um, you want to play how, how they want you to play, but at the same time you want to play it to the point where, you know, it's, it's a strength to use to the point where you can still put your own type of swag to it to be productive with it. So, And that's the thing is that Wade, you know, consistently throughout the years, whether it was you or JJ or a lot of the guys that he got to coach, he gave guys freedom. He's gave, he gave you a lot of freedom to do the stuff that you felt like, all right, I can win this way. This is what I want to do. Is that something where you just have to build that trust up over time when you're working with coaches that necessarily haven't been with you day to day? Yeah, 100%. I feel like... um all coaches want want the guy that they coach you to be productive and make plays, so they're not going to try to you know pit chains on you and make it make you one dimensional to the point where you can't do what you do. Um, and again, you know, if you if you if you're doing something outside the box that you know you know is, is taking a chance, you got to make you got to make the play to show these coaches that you're able to do that to the point where they trust you to give you that freedom to just go. Um, if you see something, you feel something to go play fast. So. Um, you know, you, you got to earn that respect. You got to earn that trust from the coaches. And, and that's all about what you do on the field and putting it on film to the point where, you know, they trust what you see and the way you plan certain things at times that they feel like that um, you doing them and taking them chances can can still, you know, be effective because you're making a place in a, in a big way. So in terms of just, you know, your career overall, and, and I know a lot of guys don't think about it this way, but I still wanted to ask you about it. If you win, let's hypothetically, if you win the Defensive Player of the Year again this year, that'd be the third time you've done it. And there's only two other guys in the history of the league that have done that. Do you think about that stuff? Do you think about where you fit among just the history of football and other great defensive players that have come before you? I would say no, but yeah, at the same time, I feel like, you know, you you, you want to have success. You you you. 
you want to be labeled as one of the best that, that play the game at, at your position for sure. Um, and then you go about, you know, certain guys, like you think about J.J. Watt, you know, a guy that won defensive player of the year three times. You know, he had two years where he had 20 and a half sacks. So for me, that if, if you if you want to talk about trying to, you know, make goals and chase stuff, you know, that's that's a guy goals that I'm trying to chase and surpass just because the production he did was, you know, was it's hard to do. You know, it's hard to get 20 sacks two years. You know, it's hard to win three defensive players of the year. But, you know, if anything, that kind of motivates you to keep working, keep trying to find ways to get yourself better because it's like if he can do it, why can't I do it? You know, so um, so I, w- I would say yeah and no to that question. So you, you got guys like that that, you know, that had great success and, and that, that motivates you to, to keep working because if he did it, why can't I do it type thing. So It's funny because with you – the numbers are there always be bigger numbers because for interior defensive linemen, those 20 sack seasons are almost impossible to do just by virtue of the way that you're being used. But I'm sure in your mind, that's not how you think about it. It's like, why couldn't I get 20 sacks in a year? So even with the success that you've had, I'm sure that every single offseason, it's like, well, there's one more bar that I can probably clear. So that's probably helpful in a way. Yeah, exactly. It, it just don't allow me to get let myself be satisfied. And that's that's one thing I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, you accomplish a lot, and you and you and you and you and you and and a lot of things come your way from just the body work you put in. But for me, it's always I feel like I can do more. You know, I feel like I ain't I ain't hit my peak. Yeah, I feel like I ain't played my best football yet. I feel like I can do that much more. Um, so, you know, it, it's like it's like a it's like a gift and a curse. You know, because you know you you working nonstop, but you know you kind of sometimes you, you need to learn to let your body relax a little bit. But um, you know, they come with it. So. That's kind of, it's just interesting being like, you know, I'm not trying to compare you to LeBron James, but when you're the best player, when you're the best at what you do, I'm sure that it's not the complacency that easily sets in. It's just that, well, what, how can I get better and how can I do this? So I'm sure it just requires you to kind of take a critical look at your game each offseason. Like, all right, this is, I wasn't the best possible version of myself in this exact scenario. Talking about like those third down rushes. So I'm sure even that kind of conversation with yourself is something where you have to check yourself a little bit every single year. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the that's the best thing about the off season. You know, it's, it's, you find a ways to get yourself better. You study yourself. You see, you, you I know what my weakness is and my strengths is. I know what I need to get better. You know, you guys might not see it. You guys might not know, but I know <laughs> what I need to do for myself to be that much better. So, me and not allowing myself to be satisfied, not, me not let my not allowing myself to be comfortable, um, is, is the reason why I'm able to. I feel like get myself better. That's that's why I continue to work as hard as I do. You know, anybody that know me know, you know, I I, I live off um, hard work pay off. I, I truly believe in that. So um, I put the body of working and I believe the outcome is always going to be good things when you actually, you know, you work for it, you know, because this far in my life, you know, I, I, I work so hard to get where I'm at today. You know, I ain't going to stop stop now that, that I'm at a certain point. I'm just going to continue to work and trying to get myself that much better. When you look at some of those guys that have come before you, whether it's Reggie White or Lawrence Taylor, certain guys, have you taken parts of game, their games? Have you watched players from other eras and seen what kind of stuff maybe you can take and graft onto the player you want to be? Um, my rookie year, um, I definitely had a cut-up mate with like John Randall and Warren Sapp. Just see how they play. Cause they similar body type, size-wise. and, and just. But I, I feel like you can't really – where everybody's different football players. I, 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 you can't try to, you know, you could try to um, see a certain move they do and trying to work it to put it into your game. But as far as, you know, I can't do what 
you know, John Randall did or, or Warren Sapp. They probably can't do some things that I can do. So, you know, everybody's different. Everybody plays different. Only thing you can do is trying to, you know, you see a, a certain rush somebody to do. You can be like, okay, I, I like that. I, mean, I, I feel like that's something that I can do that I can be productive at by working it and learning it. But, you know, every football player is different, you know. It's interesting because like with receivers, I've talked to a lot of receivers about how they add releases to their games. And that almost seems easier because you're the one dictating the action in a way. But because so much of what you do is based on the pressure a guy's blocking with, how a guy is setting everything else, it's probably harder to just take certain individual moves and be like, I'm going to use that because a lot of what you have to do is based on how people are playing you. Yeah, exactly. And then you, I might study something a week of film and they might be set in one way. And then you come out and they, and they set in a whole different way to the point where you got to adjust to what they're doing and, 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 and things like that. So, um, you know, sometimes you, you expect one thing and, and you get a whole nother thing. You, you might think they're going to block it one way and then they block it a whole nother way because they're going to slide the protection to you every single time. So a guard can overset heavy because, you know, he got that center help coming. So uh, it's, it's a lot that go into it, you know, that the world don't really understand and know about. But. Um, that's my job is to find ways to defeat that and, and still find ways to be productive. So. so Aaron, you're here on behalf of Dr. Teal's Epsom salt soaks, which help ease muscle aches and pains. You know, it's a part of your recovery process. Just walk me through after a game, how that product is just fits into the way that you recover and what your post game recovery routine typically looks like. Well, it's honestly, it's something that I use pretty much every single day. Um, you know, we, if we play a Sunday game, we got Mondays, we work out. Um, I got a massage chiropractor. Then later that night, I'm soaking in the Epsom soap bath. I might be in there, warm bath, um, 15, 20 minutes, you know, kick back on social media or, or just playing some music, just let my body relax. Um, wake up the next morning, see how I feel from there. You know, it, it kind of take the aches and pains away from me big time. So it, it's something that I truly live by. And, I, and I, anytime I feel like any aches and pains, you know, that night, at nighttime, I'm always going to soak in the Epsom soap bath before I get in the shower, always, you know. It's just something that, you know, going into this off season, I mean, going into this season was something I wanted to focus on, just keeping myself more more healthy, more fresh through the season, you know, with all the aches and pains, not letting it linger on. So, um, you know, being able to, to be a partner with Dr. Tills and something that I actually believe in and I use um, that I feel like helped my body, you know, recover. So, um, you know, you, you talk about something that you live by. Dr. Tills is something that, you know, that I'm using weekly every single day. I'm trying to find ways to, you know, keep my body as fresh as I can so I'll be ready to play ball come Sunday. Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for the time, man. Can't tell you how fun this was. Uh, Good luck uh, for the rest of the season, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. I appreciate you. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, it's time for this week's team visit, and the timing worked out absolutely perfectly on this. We were going to talk about the Dolphins anyway with Josh Tolentino from The Athletic, but now we have a lot more to talk about. We're recording this, I don't know, five, six hours after the Dolphins announced that Tua Tagovailoa is going to be their starting quarterback moving forward. Josh, I'm sure it's been a big day for you. You've been a little busy over there? Robert, man, what a, a hectic day, and I think it's one that Dolphins fans for several decades since the Dan Marino days, they've been waiting for. They've been suffering through a lot of subpar, poor quarterback play over the, the past several years. And I think back in April when the Dolphins selected Tua Tagovailoa with the fifth overall pick, there was just so much excitement. But at the same time, that had to be tamed with knowing that Ryan Fitzpatrick is still here and he was going to serve this mentor-mentee role to Tua until the team thought he was finally ready and checked all the boxes, both physically, mentally, from a preparation standpoint. And you know what? They're here in week seven. They're sitting at three and three, and they're officially beginning the, the Tua Tagovailoa era here in Miami. So a lot of excitement going on throughout the South Florida region. So my, I guess the biggest question, why now? Yeah, I, I mean, you look directly at the timing of the, the move, and, and you think that hey, Ryan Fitzpatrick has led this team to a 3-3 and record. And, you know, after their wins and even their losses, you have so many players on the team, specifically on the offense. Mike Kosicki saying, you know, I'll, you know basically saying that I'll, I'll, I'll go to war and, and die for, for a guy like Fitz. That, that's what <laughs> Fitz exudes in terms of, you know, what he brings to the table, that he's always out there. The, you know, the term Fitz magic is tossed around uh, every time he's on the field it's either fits magic or fits tragic but no matter what you get you're gonna get his, his all-out effort in terms of fighting and diving head first for those extra yards and you know making the the spectacular play that you know in his form you know with, with his his body frame and I think the beard obviously sticks out that you know a typical guy like him wouldn't be making those plays so uh, he gets that rally that fight from this team but at this time, you know, Flo, Brian Flores, the head coach, he thinks that he's fully ready. And I, I don't think it's just Flo's decision. I think also an organization standpoint that they see, hey, you know, we're in week seven. He gets two extra, you know, he gets an extra week, two weeks to prepare for the Rams. And not just that, they have a favorable schedule here in November. And at three and three, they're just one game out of first place behind the Bills. So I think all that played a factor in the decision to, to start to a time now in Miami. 
So I feel like you know, a lot of people have responded to this news with, well, they're in contention. You know, if they could possibly win the division, why would they go away from Ryan Fitzpatrick? And I think that the number one factor that has defined the Chris Greer, Brian Flores era in Miami is that they've been willing to abide by their own timeline, whether that was with team building or how bad they got and how much they tore it all down. And I think the same thought process applies to this. I don't think they can win the division. Let's keep Fitzpatrick in there is sound decision making. I think you should be making choices based on how good this team can be next year, two years from now, three years from now. And if you believe that putting Tua in right now will not actively stunt his development, getting as much information as you can about him, about the rest of the team, and about how you should build moving forward before this season ends is probably the way you should be going about this. So I completely understand why you would do it if you don't think it's actively going to deter from his development and from the development for the rest of the roster. Exactly to that point is that a lot of people point to that Fitz has has kept them competitive to this point. They point out his interceptions, which is, I think, third most in the league right now. Uh, But exactly that, I think from a day-to-day standpoint, they want to see what Tua and the rest of the offense can bring. Uh, but not again, not just that. It, it's a long term project here. You know, Tua is expected to be here for a long time. They drafted three rookie offensive linemen who have all started to this point. And, uh, you know, the weapons around him, I think it's about seeing what he can do with this offense now. And obviously, everyone knows about those draft picks that they got from, from the Houston Texans, the first and second round picks. So they've got a lot of ammo heading into the offseason, this upcoming offseason. And this comes, Robert, after an offseason where they spent a lot of money on, you know, several different pieces, the most in the NFL at $200 million on free agents. So uh, I think that's a great point. It's all about the development and seeing how the pieces mesh because, again, they do have a lot of ammo heading to this winter. So the, there are two different pieces of the offense, I think, to kind of take into consideration. How he's going to mesh with the weapons that they have. You know, I think Kasiki is a really fun player. The way that they use him, I think it meshes very well with Changelu's offense. Yeah, Preston Williams and Devontae Parker on the outside, both of whom I think are interesting players. So the weapons are such that I think you're not putting a very important piece of your franchise into a, in a position to fail. The offensive line is the bigger question. And there's been some discourse on the internet, as there typically is, about offensive line play in Miami today. And when you look at what that group is compared to what they were last year, they're much better. But they're also a very young, inexperienced, and flawed group that you're putting in front of, again, the future of your franchise, potentially. Do you think that 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 went into the thought process? Do you think that went into the decision saying, is the offensive line good enough for us to potentially put Tua in harm's way here when there isn't a ton to be gained in the short term? I think that was, was definitely a factor, Robert. And you, again, the, the, they've got three rookies on that offensive line between Austin Jackson, Solomon Kinley, and Robert Hunt there with Kinley and Hunt manning the right side now. Jackson's actually injured with a foot injury. Um, but when you think of the offensive line and what they bring right now, I mean, it, it's so hard to, to, to judge, but to this point, I mean, they, they've held their own, but have they been a good offensive line? I think that's still a, a big question and thought that they, they really haven't. But the, 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 the biggest uh, point here is that the expectations were so low following last season and just the <laughs> horrid offensive line that they had last season. You know, Fitzpatrick finished with the, the team as the team's leading rusher, and that's never 
you know, that's never a good sign. And, you know, they, they went and added a few veteran backs and Jordan Howard, you know, he's been a big disappointment, Matt Breida and, and Miles Gaskin has emerged as that lead tailback there. But when you think about all those pieces that um, just how low of expectations were coming into this season based off uh, last year's performance in terms of pass protection and just the running game, they, they were the worst in the NFL. And I don't even think it was close uh, from that standpoint. Yeah, they've improved. I still think they have a long way to go. I think that comes with any time that you only have one returning starter on that line and Jesse Davis, who I still think, you know, isn't a, a great tackle. I mean, he's a great sixth offensive lineman. You know, he can play all five positions, really, at least all four positions, he, even though he's taken snaps at a center in practice. So that's a great asset to have as a sixth offensive line. But, uh, you know, are they meeting expectations? I think that's a huge discussion, but they've definitely improved. But again, the, the bar was pretty low to begin with. It's a really good way to think about how offensive lines and quarterbacks interact with one another. Because Fitzpatrick, I think, has the third fastest time to throw in the NFL. When you watch them play, totally tracks. I and mean, there was a play against the 49ers where he hit Kasiki on a deep uh deep corner to the left side. I think it was like a 70-yard gain or something. And when he lets that ball go, it's off his back foot with three guys chasing him. And that's a play that should be a sack that the quarterback turned into a really important play. That happens a lot if you watch the Dolphins film over the first six weeks. They also haven't played that many teams with strong pass rushes. And you watch guys like Kinley and Hunt. Kinley especially has been fun for me to watch. I went back and watched a couple games this morning. And the, his play style, he's physical. He, he doesn't look like an, a, you know, one of those slimmer guards. He's a bigger guy. He's aggressive. But his lateral quickness has a lot to be desired. Teams are going to put him in games. And when you have longer developing plays, potentially, with a quarterback who's starting his first NFL game and not a quarterback who's seen hundreds of thousands of NFL looks over the last decade and a half, you're going to see those cracks show up. I think the biggest question is, do they show up enough to put your quarterback in a potentially dangerous situation for his development. And clearly, the Dolphins don't think the answer is yes because they're putting him out there. Yeah, and you mentioned Kinley and how big of a guy he is. He actually granted me permission to start calling him his his nickname that he's had now for several years, the Big Fish. I mean, the dude is, you know, <laughs> 300. Yeah, on Zoom the other day, I, I asked him permission. And he said he's actually been one of the best interviews that we've had. You know, interviews are so tough nowadays on Zoom. Like, yeah player interaction but he's definitely been one of the most colorful guys on the team and you know as a rookie class I think really with any NFL rookie class those guys all come in together they have that special bond that they're beginning their NFL careers together so uh, with that you know you've got the three offensive linemen between Hunt, Kinley, and Jackson who have that special bond with Tua they got here together they went through under unique circumstances together and that they're going to do this thing together uh, again at that as we, as you just mentioned, they're still in their first NFL game. I mean, Hunt coming into this game against the Rams, it's just going to be his third NFL game. You definitely see a lot of mistakes in, in terms of, uh, I think, really the pass protection side. Um, while Fitz has had, the again, the, the most time in terms of, you know, he's up there in leaders of how much time he has to throw, I think a lot of that can be attested to, or at least a good, a good amount can be factored in is that they haven't faced a dominant type pass rush in terms of the, you know, their first six opponents. So, you know, they've got a big one here coming up next week in Aaron Donald. And I think there's going to be a lot of tension on that left side of how to, to protect. And um, with that, I think that Tua and, and Chan Gailey 
I'm going to be interested to see how many snaps he takes directly under center. I think there's going to be a lot of pistol, uh, more motion that we've seen in these first six weeks, and definitely a lot of shotgun mixed in there to, to keep him away from, you know, that immediate pressure that you might face when you start, a, you know, the snap under center. I'll be curious. I was going to ask you how you think the offense will change because with, with Fitz, it seemed like there were some RPO things where he could make some distinctions at the line. I mean, plays where he was making the decision so quick that the, there wasn't even a mesh point. He was just throwing the ball, even though the offensive line was run blocking. And I'm curious because there was so much of that at Alabama where you're really allowing to his decision-making and how fast his brain moves to take over. Do they do more of that? Because I think that more RPO is a lot of play action, not only would serve his skill set, but would also put those offensive linemen in positions to succeed. Because those guys, again, are physical, they're aggressive, they're young. Having them drop back 35 times a game, I don't think is in the best interest of them or their quarterback. So how that offense looks and whether it looks significantly different with two at quarterback versus Fitzpatrick, I think will be a huge question here over the first few games. Yeah, and I think just watching Tua and Fitz in practice, and not just practice, but but even warm-ups where fans can see, you know, you just take simple videos and the eye test, I think you just see so much more zip and velocity in the short yardage throws when Tua's out there, uh, you know, as he takes his reps after Fitz. But from an offensive standpoint, I, I would be, or I am curious to see how much RPO is called and not just that, how much they implement, you know, these multi-players like Jakeem Grant, um, they've got an Isaiah Ford more involved, but, uh, you know, two guys who have similar skill sets, you know, they're, they're rookies. They're both former college quarterbacks. They're trying to turn them into these hybrid running backs receivers. But Lynn Bowden, originally drafted by the Raiders, he's actually had a, a few games here under his belt. And then Malcolm Perry, who's actually been an, inactive um, all season. But uh, having those pieces and seeing how they fit around Tua, again, we talk about development and what they can see for the rest of this season. Uh, I think that all of that is going to play a big role into how they act this off season with all those draft picks. What have you seen in practice? I mean, I know you guys probably don't get to watch as much as you would in a typical season, but have there been moments in practice that have jumped out to you where it's like, Oh man, this guy's ready. Like he's just as good. maybe better. The ceiling is higher. What elements of what you've seen or what you've heard from coaches have kind of led you to believe that this decision might be the right one. Yeah, I think there have been several moments, you know, even dating back to training camp, where you see Tua make the throw, and you term it the throw because, you know, you think this is a kind of a one-time moment of the day, but then he goes out and does it again the next day and the next day. So, I mean, he's definitely capable of making those electric-type plays downfield, but it's more so just uh, his composure and really how he walks around the building. You can kind of see it uh, in terms of his maturity, really at 22 years old, and obviously he was built under Nick Saban's program in Alabama. And a lot of that uh, comes from being raised uh, through that system, as you can say. But uh, I think it's more so his determination of, hey, I know what I'm doing here. I want to be the starter. But understanding that Fitz was the placeholder, and that's a term that Fitz actually gave us the very first time we talked in training camp, is that he's the placeholder. He knows that he's here temporarily in terms of what he's going to do at the beginning of the season and that two, it's going to be two a time eventually. Um, I think there were just so many moments throughout camp and throughout practices. And even in games, I think many football fans have seen on nationally televised games that two is rooting for fits this past game. And really the game in San Francisco, there were moments after the offense would score and Fitz is jogging back 
to the sideline and you see Tua just jump into his arms and Fitz will literally catch him and start carrying him around the sideline. I mean, that's just the type of relationship they've built. And, you know, you talk a lot about or you hear or, or really we've seen that the veteran and the rookie that doesn't go well all the time. That's not a guarantee. You look at Aaron Rodgers and, and Brett Favre obviously is one of the most uh, obvious examples. But um, I think this was a perfect situation in terms of the veteran rookie mentor mentee uh, um, them knowing their roles. And then, you know, to a finally being able to take over. I think it's a, it's such a fascinating dynamic. And I think it's that part of it is really interesting to me. Again, the examples that we've seen and how it can go either way. But just kind of betting on which version of your future is the smarter one, right? So let's say that right now, Ryan Fitzpatrick is a better quarterback for the Dolphins to win football games than two is. Maybe he's not, but if it's close. But in, in, you could win the AFC East, let's say, or get a wild card spot if you kept Fitzpatrick in. Is that version of your season more important to the franch- your long-term franchise development than getting 10 starts for the guy you want to be your quarterback with the young nucleus that you have and missing the playoffs. Which one is better for you two years from now? I think that is a question they probably had to think about. And I don't really know the answer, but they clearly think it's the latter because they're going away from something that's working to something that they want to be their future. Yeah, I think it's the latter as well, Robert. And we discussed earlier about where this team is and how many people want to think that Hey, they're competitive. They're at three and three. They, you know, playoffs are a discussion. But I think everything goes back to look at where Brian Flores is in his coaching tenure. I mean, he's just in year two. Going into the season, we all knew this is still a rebuild in terms of they're only in their second year uh, of this rebuild, as they term. But I think the biggest distraction here is how they're going about with the rebuild. You know, they. They add in, you know, again, the, the, the free agents that we mentioned earlier. A rebuilding team doesn't really do that, you know, in terms of just shelling out money to these veteran players and, you know, discussing the actual terms of their contract can be another story or a whole other discussion uh, in terms of were they valued or not. But a rebuilding team doesn't usually do that. But I think it all comes back down to exactly that, that this is still a rebuild and that they're going to value these final 10 games under Tua more than uh, a playoff spot under Fitz or or being competitive under Fitz. And this was a tough decision. I talked to a couple players earlier and, you know, several, I think the majority of them were surprised that this was actually happening. And the way they found out was interesting that uh, because of the bye week that it wasn't an official team announcement. And some of them found out the same way we all found out, uh, which was just (laughs) through obviously Twitter and the like of uh, news being confirmed nowadays. So, um, but when it comes to valuing Fitz's, Fitz being able to keep this team competitive versus Tua's development and seeing what this team has in the latter 10 games of the season, what they have left, uh, I think these next 10 games are going to say a lot about not just what Tua brings to the table, but I think a lot will be focused on the, the pieces around him and where they need to direct those needs in the offseason. And that's going to be the question is what's next now. So you're in this stage of the rebuild. And I think an underrated part of this stage of the rebuild has been how well the defense has been playing. That's where they put a ton of those resources. I mean, they signed Eric flowers, but outside of that, the major contracts they handed out talking about Shaq Lawson, Cal uh, Van Noy, Byron Jones, they gave Emmanuel Ogba by that deal. So that's where they put a lot of money and it's working. You know, this team is fourth in the NFL in EPA per dropback. They're I think fifth in defensive DVOA against the pass 
And the plan overall, I think, is crystallizing a bit. That's you want they want it to be a pass defense and they wanted to see what they could get with Tua, and that's what they've gotten so far. So when you're thinking about, all right, if this is the team they are through the end of the season, they play exactly this way for the next 10 games. Where do you think some of those resources may be directed as they say, all right, let's move from stage two of the rebuild to, all right, we're ready to compete right now. Where does that Texans pick, the two Texans picks, their own picks, what do they still need, do you think, as you kind of judge the entire roster right now? Yeah, I think you mentioned the pass defense, and really we can include the pass rush. That really didn't come to form until these past few games where we really kind of saw that, hey, this is why they went and opened their wallets. This is why they spent their money. The defense actually, I think, struggled. I mean, it's very fair to say they struggled, you know, allowing Josh Allen to throw for a career high in, in week two. And, um, but as the weeks have progressed, they're, you're starting to see, hey, this is the Shaq Lawson that they wanted. This is the Kyle Van Noy that they brought in here. And, and then again, with Byron Jones' health, he's finally being able to be out there with that secondary. This is why we brought Byron Jones in. Um, as we move forward, I think really that offensive line, I think 10 games is a pretty good – assessment in terms of, hey, we're, we see what Robert Hunt brings to the table. If Austin Jackson's able to get back in there, we can see how all three of them fit. Um, and hey, do we need to spend another pick on the offensive line, which, we, which was a big need of addressing this past offseason? I think they'll know that answer here in these next two months. But when it comes to you know, wanting to pick a position for those next two, those specific two draft picks from you know, that trade with Houston, I mean, I think you've got to consider wide receiver. You, you look at mm -hmm. uh, the weapons they have now. Obviously, Devontae Parker is a known guy. I still, I'm not, you know, Preston Williams, he's a very, I don't even know how you want to term it, but he's a very, like. He's a useful player. Yeah, he's, he's useful. But there are times where it's just, he's, he disappears at times. And um, I think a lot of that can be uh, factored back to the injury in the ACL last year. And he's, you know, we talk about year marks following the injury. You know, both him and Tua are approaching their year mark since, obviously, Preston's knee injury and Tua's uh, hip injury. Uh, you know, how that goes into their, their head on game day, I think that plays a big role that they're about to hit this year mark of when they suffered those injuries. So I think they want to um, be able to provide him with not just the protection but also the proper weapons here, uh, you know, as we say, year two and year three over these next couple of years with Tua. It seems like that could be a spot that they absolutely could add somebody. And then you look at the defense. It's fun to watch a plan come together. You know, you watch how they built this team and you have Byron Jones, you have Xavier Howard. Going back to watch Xavier Howard, it's amazing what they can do defensively because they have him. He is absolutely that same Stefan Gilmore, number one corner. We are going to let you lock up on the outside and use our resources elsewhere. And the way that allows a guy like Bobby McCain to kind of roam around a little bit, it's working. The way they want to play on the back end is working. I think the question is what happens with the rest of the front seven. You know, linebacker is a position that they absolutely could do some stuff. I believe Landon Roberts is going to be a free agent. Uh, Camille Gruvier Hill, I think, is going to be a free agent. Those guys play a ton of snaps for them. The pass rush is interesting because they're very much in that New England mush rush. We're not really going after people. We're standing people up kind of approach. Van Noy is a big part of that. So it's been fun. I mean, this team absolutely plays hard. They have a plan, I think, on offense and defense, and it's coming together. So there are, they would be interesting to watch and worth watching even if Tua hadn't been put into the lineup. And now that he has, I mean, it really has worked. What they have tried to do to this point, 
I think it's gone about as well as it possibly could. And the credit goes to Brian Flores and the vision they had for how they wanted to build this team. Yeah, and you mentioned the the additions on defense and how it's coming to form with the secondary and how Xavier holds his side. And typically in a week-to-week fashion, we've seen now in four consecutive weeks, he's he's leading the NFL in interceptions, having a pick each week. But uh, when you look at the pass rush, I think the pass rush is one of the most interesting parts about this team is that um, in their in their wins, they've all registered more than three sacks in the, you know all three wins. And the losses, they have two or less, no more than two in the three losses. So it's like when the pass rush shows up to play, that allows guys like Xavier Howard, Byron Jones, Bobby McCain to make plays. But I'm still not convinced about the pass rush. I think this this contract with Emmanuel Ogba is interesting. You know, the two year, I think it was fifteen million dollar deal. It kind of feels like a fill in that. Hey, you know, we saw you know, a little bit of his, what he was capable to do in Kansas city, you know, let's bring him here to kind of fill in. And, you know, knowing that we have these extra draft picks heading into this year, maybe we spend uh, one on uh, one of those edges. So um, I think that might be the, the thought process moving forward. It's interesting to me because they've built like new England in the way they want to play, but the resources don't necessarily align with that. New England doesn't pay pass rushers because they rely on games and twists and containing quarterbacks, and so they don't feel like they need a $15 million guy to rush the passer because that's not how they want to do it. But the Dolphins go out, they give Van Noy $14 million a year, or however much it was, He's 13.9 is his cap hit next season. You have Agba get a reasonable deal, Shaq Lawson gets that reasonable deal, but most of those guys are in the, especially Lawson and and Agba are bigger, you know, 270-ish. Let's run some twists. Let's run some games. So it's it's interesting. I think that that's, when you're looking at New England-influenced teams and how they try to follow that blueprint, they often don't spend the resources the same way the Patriots do, even if they want the same final product, if that makes sense. So I'm curious whether they are willing to say, yeah, we want a pass rusher in the top five because for the most part, the way they play, it doesn't really seem like they value guys who are one-on-one edge winners in the same way that a traditional team might. Yeah, they really don't. And you bring up the New England style of, of play and not just play, but personnel and how Flo operates the team. I mean, that's really all he's known over the past decade is how to operate under that Bill Belichick uh, style of, of coaching and I think you see it on on every level it's not just um you know we talk about how they award playing time I mean the cornerback situation the first three weeks the snap count if you you were to like put it in a graph form Robert I'm imagining like just an up down crazy type roller coaster <laughs> um graph of you know the cornerback play was not consistent at all you had Nick Needham who led the team in snaps last year defensive snaps and this dude, I mean, he, he started, I think, week one. He didn't play at all week two. Uh, I might have those mixed up, but that, it was just back and forth, back and forth, didn't play at all, played a lot. Um, so the way that Flo goes about managing his team, I think managing is a good word. Um, it, it's very similar to what you see in New England and the play style. But, uh, again, a few differences when you talk about um, how they're awarding these contracts, especially this past off season. Well, I think it's it's worth looking at because one of the things that can stunt your development as a team is when you spend money in free agency on players that are available for a reason in free agency, and it blocks pathways to playing time for younger players on the roster. I think you've seen that in places like Houston, for example. But the Dolphins, I think, have done a good job of balancing it 
where you're giving out contracts to create an identity and a nucleus for your roster, but you still are giving opportunities to younger guys. The fact that Miles Gaskin is their running back and they said, he's the best guy, let's give him the snaps. I think that's a good thing. I think you should try to balance those two things. And I feel like they've done a good job of doing that, even if it's difficult to pull off. Yeah, you can't, you know, our viewers can't, or our listeners can't see uh, me right now through the pod. But as you said that, I'm nodding my head like in big <laughs> motions that Miles Gaskin is kind of the clear product of this system that they, again, we mentioned earlier, this was the worst rushing team in the NFL last year. And Miles Gaskin was part of that. Um, you know, there were, they obviously had a handful of backs last year, but I mean, he was part of that equation and, you know, they didn't see this type of Miles Gaskin this past, I mean, last year, I should say, but he gets to camp. I mean, he's one of the most improved players on the roster. And then we actually talked to Eric Studsville, the running backs coach today. And I think a great quote that he said is that, you know, Miles Gaskin arrived and this wasn't the same Miles that we saw. Uh, you know, in the final games of the 2019 season that he came and he, you, you could clearly see the dedication and, you know, in typical, in another franchise and another NFL team, typically, you know, that second year guy who struggled his first year, especially he wasn't really a high draft pick. He's not going to be overtaking a guy that you just awarded almost $10 million to in Jordan Howard, but that's exactly what's happened here in Miami. And not just Jordan Howard, they traded for Matt Breida, you know, still obviously analytically one of the fastest players in the NFL. Um, I still think they, they could got to find a way to get him more involved in Chan Gailey's play calling. But really, when you add those two veteran backs, I don't think Miles Gaskin was even in discussion in terms of how many snaps he would get. I think we all thought he was going to be the clear number three guy behind Howard and Matt Breida. But you look at, you know, we're six weeks in and it hasn't even really been close. Howard's been inactive the, first, the past two games. And I don't think there would be many NFL teams where, you know, you go out and award a guy a contract like that two years, uh, almost $10 million, and you've got a guy on the payroll just in his second year after a, after a terrible season who is leading the team uh, there in the backfield. It's a real – it's a definitely a, a cool balance between flexibility and commitment to your vision for your franchise. And I think that that's what they've exhibited – for the last two years as they've gone about this plan. And I think that the Tua decision aligns with that because you're winning. You could easily rationalize keeping him on the bench because you want to do as much as you can to maximize the 2020 season. But in the end, how important is the 2020 season really when you don't actually have a chance to compete? You should be playing for 2021 and 2022. And in my mind, it kind of feels like that's what the Tua decision is. So it's definitely a team worth watching. I'm excited to see how the rest of the season goes for them. And I really appreciate your insight and your time. So uh, everybody, you should definitely go read Josh on The Athletic. Read all of his thoughts on the Tua decision, on where the Dolphins are at. And uh, yeah, man, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, Robert, really appreciate it. You know, whatever you want to term it, it's, it's funny. The decision falls on a Tuesday that it was leaked. You can call it Tua Tuesday, Tagovailoa <laughs> takeover, whatever you want to call it. But uh, it's officially Tua time in Miami. And I think we're going to learn a lot more about, you know, one of the most accurate quarterbacks in, in NCAA history, at least over these next 10 games. The number one touchdown percentage in the history of college football, I think by two percentage points, my old editor from the ringer, Ben Glicksman, who is the number one to a fan on planet earth made me made sure to let me know that before I recorded this segment. So, all right, Josh, thanks a lot, man. We'll talk to you soon. 
I appreciate it, Robert. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you to Darius Butler for joining us. Thank you to Aaron Donald for coming on the show. Thank you to Josh for talking to us. We will be back tomorrow with Lindsey Jones to break down all things week seven. Until then, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast app of choice. I would sincerely appreciate that. Please subscribe to The Athletic. Dollar a month promotion is still going. Visit theathletic.com slash football show. Until then, though, thank you very much for listening. Talk to you guys later. This was The Athletic Football Show.